Welcome everyone to Never Stay Dead. I'm Damien, also known as Sleepy Reader, here with my co-host. Hello, Internet! It's me, the magical Matthew Dergish. Here's Matthew. Well. So today we're here to talk about a fabulous run of the Fantastic Four. Something that was uh, fresh at the time and historically important to Marvel moving forward. The uh, the introduction of the Inhumans in the early Fantastic Four issues, depending on how you count it, starting in issue 44 or starting in issue 45, they're first named the Inhumans in issue 45. So we're looking at 44, 45, 46... 47 and 48 is that right yep but just the first few pages of 48 so um i think it's hard to summarize each individual issue shall i just sort of summarize the whole arc a little bit yeah i think that's the better way to go about it in this case which is funny yeah. for this age of comics i don't think you get right. that much right it's both an arc and written that you could read or a kid could eat, read each issue completely by itself too at the same time, which created a lot of repetition, but basically actually I need your help a little bit for how, I can't remember how issue 44 starts, but this guy Gorgon shows up cause he's hunting for Medusa. Mm -hmm. And at the same time we're having problems with dragon man. So <laughs> throughout the next few issues, we have lots of fights with dragon man Big fight with Gorgon, then um, kind of a, a break where Johnny Johnny Storm just kind of wanders off through a deserted part of New York City and sees a beautiful girl who turns about, out to be Crystal of the Inhumans. And um, they have kind of an encounter and they capture him and he escapes and he signals the Fantastic Four and they all come and they have a big fight. With the Inhumans, especially with Black Bolt, a big knockout, knockout uh, fist fight between Black Bolt and the Thing. And there's this guy named the Seeker who's trying to capture the Inhumans. And eventually we learn to take them back to the Great Refuge, the Hidden Land. Is it called the Great Refuge and the Hidden Land? I can't. I, yeah, I think there's a little bit of naming confusion as with a lot of early Marvel. <laughs> and... Um, and so uh, when the Seeker goes off just with Triton, Reed Richards puts a homing device on his high-tech flying machine, and they follow him to this, to this uh, great refuge. Um, to what end? I guess just to kind of spy on them and figure out who they are. At least that's Reed Richards' plan. But, but Johnny Storm wants to find... Crystal again, who he's fallen in love with, even though they've only spoken a few words together. And um, and there we meet Maximus, who is the evil brother of Black Bolt and has previously, before any of, you know, anything has happened in the, before the comic books happened, he had somehow overthrown Black, caused Black Bolt to lose his voice, overthrown him, taken the crown. Um, Black Bolt gets the crown back by literally ripping the crown off Maximus' head, Maximus's head and putting it back on his own head. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, 
some other little bits of fighting, I guess, happen. Oh, Maximus pulls the trigger on a machine that's going to destroy all humans on the planet with a big cliffhanger at the end of one of the issues. And then in the next issue, big spoilers here, uh, his machine doesn't work. Uh, humans get shook up a little bit, but they're fine and they survive, which somehow proves to the Inhumans that they are humans too and we're all the same and they should come out of their shell. But right at that moment, Maximus pulls the trigger on another machine, which causes a, a wall of negaforce to surround the Great Refuge. And the Fantastic Four barely escape by using Sue Storm's force field. And, um, and so now Johnny is once again separated from Crystal, and they all head back to New York City um, for the rest of the issue 48, which is the beginning of the Galactus trilogy, which we'll cover in another, possibly cover in another podcast if, if Matt can stand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is something from your childhood, right? Like this is the story you remember. Following. Well, yes and no, because this was published before I started reading comic books. Um, <clears throat> but I read a few of these issues in reprints right around the same time I started reading the currently published Fantastic Four. So I was a bit confused as I was go back and forth between what was in Marvel's Greatest Comics and what was in the Fantastic Four called the World's Greatest Comic on the top of it. I could <clears throat> see that confusion, definitely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I, so I have experienced reading this as a 10 or 11-year-old, reading at least some of these issues. And, and I certainly loved them. And, and rereading them now, I certainly thought they were comics for children. <laughs> All right. Um, what, what, what were your uh, large-scale impressions? Why don't we start with that kind of stuff? Okay, so this is the first time I'm reading these issues, but I also recently had that bug in my ear from the Black Panther issues we read. And so I, I've, I don't know. It, it was a little harder for me with these. Um, this is more what I had a negative impression of the early Fantastic Four being and hit a lot more of those uh -huh. notes. It doesn't help in particular that it's the Inhumans. I don't know what it is. Any story I've read with the Inhumans just does not jive with me. And I've tried a number of incarnations from a number of different eras and I just can never get into it. Any theory as to why I don't can't get into them? It's just something about the way they're written. A lot of it revolves around Black Bolt, and he's supposed to be this big, important character that can't talk, but he also just seems kind of boring, like he's not trying to communicate anything. I don't know. Uh, just none of the characters do anything for me, right. because they're all written so bizarrely. The only one that um, kind of grabs me is... I, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it. Karnak? Karnak? Yeah. Karnak? Oh, that's how I um, pronounce it. Who has the ability to find the weakness in the... things. That's such an ingenious little idea. I, you know, but uh, even in the, in it's said explicitly in these issues that they're basically knockoff X-Men. Like. <laughs> it is a little bit hinted at, yeah. Or, you know, there's, they're compared to mutants, but then they're so they're not oh, mutants, these are they're mutants. inhumans, which to me just feels like a dumb <laughs> branding thing at that point. Like, right. And, and as explained here, I mean, later we get different explanations for them. As explained here, they are basically genetically created mutants. 
right? Each one is genetically created to have a different Which power. to me would feel like a, less of a thing because they're also supposed to be tied to the whole celestial Marvel side of things as well. Right, but that was retconned later. That's not the explanation right. we're given here. And I can't help but reading into it because I'm trying to find some... Last I knew, they were supposedly uh, an experiment done by the Kree like 100,000 years ago on a few humans to create this uh, army of super-powered characters that they would later be able to use when they had to fight other people. For instance, the Shi'ar. I believe they, in fact, later did use the Inhumans to fight the that Shi'ar. That sounds right, too. Uh, yeah, I've never taken much of an interest, so my memory with them is sketchy at best. But Well, my take on the Inhumans yes. what, before we move on is that they make a fascinating short-term thing for the Fantastic Four to visit. But I agree with you, they are in and of themselves a super interesting group of characters. The only one I really like is Medusa. And she was around before, because um, they mentioned that she been there earlier. Right. And it's kind of fun how she went from being a villain to being an inhuman to later being a member of the Fantastic Four. But I feel like they look really cool, and for two or three issues for them to show up as supporting characters, so to speak, or, you know, sort of mysterious villains. I kind of like them. I really like the hidden world kind of thing, especially the kid in me found that very exciting. Um, and of course I do get a mix of nostalgia and I'm both an adult and a child reading this. The, um, the sexism really jumps out at me now in these yes. particular issues, more than in other issues we read. He's constantly telling Sue to, you know, shut up and let me and just do what I say and all this stuff. And that they just she changes her hairdo and they all call her ditzy and other things like that. There's also the bit with Crystal where Johnny's just following her and there's just this kind of this expectation. And I'm like, you just do that? I don't know. It just hit me as odd. Also, Lockjaw's odd well, in this. He's just described as this dog with antenna, but I'm used to seeing him with the metal like fork in his head that was like a tuning fork, which makes more sense in my mind. Didn't he have that? I, he just didn't has he antenna. I mean, it is shaped like that, but later I think it's like a metal like thing in his head. Oh, but I thought it was a super cool idea then and I still think it is now to have a giant super strong dog who also can teleport you <laughs> I don't like dogs so I'm not for it but now again it, it probably doesn't work well to be explored too closely or something you know as it has perhaps been in later Marvel <clears throat> right and you said earlier it was more for a child or something and that's something throughout these issues that i feel more than other comics that i've read even from the era is like it feels like the rules are constantly changing and new things keep coming in so there's no real semblance they're just moving from one thing to the next and there's less of a there's less weight on any given thing for that because you know something's just gonna pop around the corner yeah i mean i guess if you compare it to spider-man of the era spider-man was more i think self-consciously meant for teenagers to read and this maybe was more self-consciously meant meant for 11 huh. year olds to read not that 11 year olds didn't like spider-man and well because spider-man's the coolest 
And they also really go overboard in a lot of... I'm just ignoring that Spider-Man is the coolest. <laughs> they really go overboard in each issue to, like, sort of reintroduce you to what the character's powers are and, and what their psychological issue is. So it's incredibly repetitive. It really was read to, written to be read the way I read it when I was 11, which was you don't get all the issues and they're months and months and months apart. So it was handy to have those reminders <clears throat> when you were still kind of unfamiliar with the right. characters. That whole every comic book is someone's first comic, I think was written back then, is every comic book is a lot of people's first comic. And we're focused more on the people who are... Right. New and it was such a different thing back then. Distribution, expectations, the whole, the whole thing. Something that grab me too is when you look at 46 the cover of 46 black ball looks kind of young youthful maybe a little more prototypical of your average jack kirby character with his crazy costume right. but once you see him in the comic which he he showed up earlier as well um he looks more built more man than boy right right he's less boyish right. looking he almost, I don't know why, but he sort of reminds me of Superman yeah, he, or something. He has that build. Kind of a more early middle-aged hero rather than a, a 20-something, maybe a 30-something. He has that jawline. Right. And maybe the body language he's given, he just seems more serious. Now, I, it struck me more reading this that, and the, the way Reed Richards mistreats Sue Storm, it seemed like he was a much older husband who treated her like mm -hmm. a child at all times. Like maybe he's 20 years older than her <laughs> or something. And she's just graduated high school a year or two ago. And that's why he treats her this way. Yeah. The whole dynamic between Reed and Sue feels super bizarre looking at it now. And uh, I mean, it, online there's a lot of points about that. People pointing out some of the more egregious examples of how bad it got for a while. But I mean, it's it's something to think, but, you know, it was, what, 50, 60 years ago? Right. Well, uh, yeah, 50 years ago. Okay. 50 years ago. Um, yeah, and women's lib only sort of became in people's awareness a few years after this. But that doesn't mean everyone was liking women's lib a few years after this. It is interesting. I think it was under Jerry Conway, right around the time I started reading the, at the time, current uh, Fantastic Four, maybe 72 or 71, um, Sue Storm gave, uh, gave notice to Reed Richards that she was divorcing him. And for a while, it seemed like she was going to run off with Submariner. I think that's a smart move. And there were so there were a lot of fights between the the remaining three Fantastic Fours and and Submariner and Sue saying no I want to be with him leave him alone because <laughs> they assumed he'd kill her. <laughs> All right. But her reason for divorcing him was not this bad behavior here if I remember right it was because he had used some kind of device to put her, their son into a coma so that he wouldn't destroy the world or something and she couldn't forgive him for that hmm. but it seemed very modern to me at the time that there was divorce in a superhero comic 
But ultimately, they did not get divorced. But I think there's been many times where they separate and almost divorce. I mean, <clears throat> I could see it. That seems like kind of a natural drama point for a family story. So I don't know. I, I love the idea of this, and maybe it's just so familiar in comics now, but of this hidden group of people. And maybe, you know, for at the time... Although I knew of the X-Men slightly, they were not a major player in the Marvel Universe or in the comic book world. So it still seemed very exciting, this sort of hidden group of city of superheroes all hidden away who'd been there for thousands of years. Um, and it kind of evoked that kind of... Uh, those um, early 20th century novels where they're always finding lost cities in Africa or... In the Amazon jungle. And that was more the method and mode of the Fantastic Four, right? Is every comic you open, it's some new adventure, some new thing. And so... And I feel like the Inhumans fit that. And if they were just like a footnote, uh, maybe it wouldn't be as much of a thing if they were kind of some lost, you know, group. It, right. It's just funny to me, though, that, you know, the Black Panther had this grand entrance, you know, before we even see him, we have his herald... And they go to him, it's this very vaunted situation. And with the Inhumans, mm -hmm. Johnny kind of sees some girl running down the street and he kind of just follows her and things follow from there. It's very unceremonious and they just kind of yeah. happen upon it in the most domestic of terms. There's no scientific, no fantastic way that they get there. And then it's this kind of huge reckoning for the Marvel Universe with, you know, you know, that we won't really see the effect of really for years to come. And I just find it so funny that that's their introduction is just this girl jaunting down the street with her bizarre dog. Right. Well, to me, the this sequence of issues is kind of the opening salvo of when the Fantastic Four started getting really good. So now, now you and I have read previously with the Fantastic uh, with the Black Panther issues, um, ones that evolved even further from this point. So maybe I remembered wrong, except that this is also the beginning of of Joe Sinet as the inker. And I think once Jack Kirby realized he had such a good inker, he started getting much more inventive because previous inkers always ruined his artwork to an extent. All right. Um, and and. Um, I, talk, I talked at a convention with Mike Royer, who's the other, the two most popular inkers for Jack Kirby are Mike Royer and Joe Sinet. Mike Royer later in his career. Uh, Mike Royer wonders if the famous Kirby crackle was actually invented by Joe Sinet, and then Kirby saw it and started using it a lot. Huh, that's interesting. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's where the art starts, where the dynamicness of the art kicks up into a much okay. higher notch and the um propulsiveness uh, well what it seems to me i mean i think the the issues of the fantastic four the early ones are still have lots of good stuff in them but i think it's starting here where the propulsiveness of so many elements being introduced all the time and the adventures getting wilder and bigger and more cosmic and more you know pseudo profound um starts so, and I expected this to be better than it was because I sort of thought of this as the dividing line, but now I realize it's it's still more of a If you took the art on its own, I think it would almost hold up a little better. Uh, 
if you're able to insert some stuff, there's some things I wouldn't have assumed that kind of crop up, like the read relationship or certain things around certain characters. The way certain humans talk just drove me weird. And they were supposed to be odd for the time, but, right. you know, this is some comic for me back when, so everyone's talking funny by my standards. And, yeah, yeah it's just some of that kind of weight on it. But the, the art is so dynamic, and it tells a story almost on its own. And... Right, right. You hardly need to... And there's so much dialogue. uh, So much filler dialogue in a lot of cases. A lot of what... uh, Am am I saying it right? Sorry, you said it earlier. Magnus? I don't want to think it's Magnus because that's too close to Magneto for me. Maximus. No, Maximus. Maximus. So I got Um, that wrong. I'm sorry. A lot of what he says just doesn't need to be said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think <clears throat> there was there was no such thing as silent panels back then. But even beyond that, they really fill they love to fill the panels with lots of writing. Now, for me as a kid, it's weird because and I still sometimes experience this when when I read comics with no dialogue, the dialogue helps slow me down and I as a kid it helped me to spend longer looking at the same picture at each panel. I can see that. Um, but that's a that's a flimsy excuse. Now, there, there are scenes that I thought were particularly good, like when Ben is fighting Dragon Man in Alicia's hmm. uh, apartment. What goes on there is a really big, a long build-up before he says it's clobbering time. He, I feel like later on with the thing, he just says it's clobbering time all the time. But here, it built up and built up and built up till he did his really big punch after having battled and struggled. Now, there was lots of dumb dialogue between him and Alicia um, that I think only a child would buy into, right? They're sort of each wanting to sacrifice for the other in a way. Um but still, so I, f- I felt like scattered throughout here were these moments that kind of had this dramatic power, especially like you say, if you're ignoring the um, dialogue, like the whole way they rescue Triton. Um, but then it's full of dialogue where Reed is, is putting down Sue. But <laughs> Yeah. And it's funny because Reed almost seems like a completely different character because now we have him as kind of this, you know, head of the family, but very upstanding, you know, someone who people respect more than like. Uh, and here, he's just kind of that new Sherlock, kind of too smart for anyone in the room, kind of a jerk character. And it's yeah, yeah. it's a different thing. I wonder, you know, if there were diaries kept by Stan Lee, if we could see that, you know, during the period where such and such an issue was written, he was extra busy. You know, it almost feels like he spent less time thinking about the dialogue in this one than, say, uh, this man, this monster, or um, even those Black Panther ones. So at, sometimes he seems to be taking his time to think about it, and other times he's just spitting out, vomiting out dialogue. Well, both of those stories had more of a human element. That In a lot of ways, they were smaller stories. And I wonder if that's part of it, is when you start... Mm-hmm. having the crazy sci-fi stuff happening do you let the 
the flag fly for the supposed super genius for him to just kind of talk down to everyone. I wonder right. if there, that was some sort of element. That's something I'm picking up on, but I don't know how much it actually means. So, and I wonder if at some point in the, you know, they wrote this, they worked on this together for 102 issues. When they started, Marvel was a flop. No one cared about it. It was the loser comic book company that was about to go out of business. Or, you know, they might have thought it was about to go out of business. And they were slowly discovering their own popularity. I wonder if it's sometime in the middle of the Fantastic Four run that they started saying, whoa, this is actually a really popular comic book and it's going to actually last for a while. Let's start putting more effort into it. Um, And so I also feel like this might be the beginning of that. Partially because it segues into the Galactus trilogy, or the Galactus two and a half <laughs> issues, but um... yeah, that is an odd point. Is this uh, Inhumans bit is wrapped up in the first eight pages of the initial Galactus story, and Damien right. put it to me to only read this Inhuman story, so I saw one page with the Silver Surfer on it, and I stopped. Right, because I had hoped we would do a separate podcast on the Galactus one, and I wanted Matt to come fresh to that, since he's the, the newbie on, on these Silver Age comics. But I have to admit, even across the Inhuman stuff, issue 48 was more intriguing than most of the rest before it. Like, there is something uh-huh. to it beyond uh, beyond just a change in subject matter. There is something to that issue for the related bits that right. was stronger. And I think a lot of it was a lack of repetition. Like, finally, the story is just moving along, and I hadn't just read more right. or less that and then that again. Yeah, there's that. And then I thought, it also seems like Jack Kirby just suddenly wanted to move on to the next story. So he just... I bet Stan Lee didn't know he was going to wrap it up in seven pages. <laughs> I bet at this point that uh, they were just having the briefest of conversations, and then Kirby was, was drawing whatever he wanted to. And so I think in the middle of it, Kirby said, okay, I've been doing this a long time. I think I'll just switch to this other idea I have for the Silver Surfer. Um, For all his brilliance, Kirby is kind of very ADD. Um, None of his comics, like that he wrote himself, stick with any one thing for very long. Well, I think also Kirby wanted to keep things dynamic, and I think he was more of an issue guy, so he wanted each work to kind of stand on its own. But then we've seen, like in the in the Black Panther issues, they still call back to what's going on with the Inhumans, and they keep the Inhumans in the in the picture from then on. And uh, I think a few issues after the the Black Panther one, we have Johnny going on a quest to find something that will able to get through the um, the barrier that's keeping him from his true love. Right. As an adult, though, I was shocked how there was no basis for their love. (laughs) I really believed in it as an 11-year-old boy. (laughs) Sometimes being pretty is enough. That's what I rely on. (laughs) And she loves him. I'm not sure why. Just because he's the first teenage boy she ever met. And he's hot. (laughs) I guess so. I can't tell. He looks like a Jack Kirby character. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. it's kind of hard to dig into this one so much because again there's that repetition when you went through the story before 
I mean, you were summing it up, but every point was hit twice, basically. Right. Right. Or sometimes three times. And so, yeah, it, it felt like a clunkier read than a lot of things I'm used to. But man, the design yeah. on it certainly. All the giz. There was one point where. I guess they're moving giant equipment of reeds out of a room so they can put the dragon man into it. And, uh, and the literal name of the device is the, something like the iconometer Framistat. <laughs> so Stanley had no idea what to call these, these machines and stuff that Jack Kirby was creating. Well, I, I think, I mean, you complained about Black Bolt, but I think as a non, as the center of his own comic book, he's boring. But as a figure appearing in comics, a mysterious, unspeaking character, I don't think we even learn here about the whole thing that he can't speak because explosive, sonic explosions. Yeah, no, he just kind of doesn't talk. Um, none of that's in there. He just can't talk. Um, and he's getting power through his antenna from radiation or something i think it was very intriguing and for a kid you know the appearance of gorgon is this sort of scary figure who's just relentlessly chasing after medusa and the the dragon man who's this artificial dragon creature with the mind of a child more like the mind of a puppy yeah. dog i think but anyway um these are a lot of really fun elements for a great kids comic it's it's kind of struck me reading this when it felt so much like a kid's comic that all this grown up, you know, stuff that is now read by grown ups has spun out of all of this. Right. You know, outside of comic books, you don't really see that. You know, you don't have the Narnia books and then the Narnia books for adults, um, or at least not directly. I suppose there are now fantasy books, novels that are mostly for adults that are inspired yeah. by Narnia or something. But. But so maybe that was a bad example. But anyway, you know, it's just odd. Or, you know, Gilligan's Island, then Gilligan's Island for that adults. That was Survivor, right? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. No, so I, I'm completely I take wrong. your meaning. <laughs> but it still strikes me as funny that, you know, this empire of entertainment for people 20 and up, mostly, or at least, you know, 14 and up, started with such young material. Right, uh... There, I've heard a lot of talk about that, about how comics, you know, grew with a lot of the audience, but at a certain point couldn't bring in any more new audience. And that's been something more of an issue. But of course, you were a new audience. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, I definitely, it's funny to me, though, there's, I have some opinions of stuff where, in particular around Spider-Man, like, people say, well, Spider-Man needs to be a teen. That's how they connect with him. When I came to Spider-Man, he was looking at being a dad in a lot of ways is much more of an adult than he is now. Right. Yeah. So part of the problem is us old people constantly saying, oh, it should be the way we remember it. But apparently a lot of us old people still buy a lot of comics. Right. So. There's that conundrum. So that kind of skews things. The only hard fast you know in my day it was this way that i have a hard time getting over is an x-men team without cyclops that just never feels right to me right <laughs> well you're eventually stuck in your own um you're now old enough to start being stuck in your own nostalgia uh, a bit for what the x-men were like what spider-man was like when you started 
what the Teenage Mutant Ninja but I love, Turtles were. Well, I don't love X-Men right now. And but. you've... That's something that you've grown up with, right? The Ninja Turtles, when you started, you I assume you were watching kids' cartoons for them first and then discovering more sophisticated versions of Right, though there's a harsher break. The turtles are more interesting in that respect because they, they have different incarnations. And it's not like this continuous story. Right. So I feel like when they break and they're a little different or the origin changes, it's more natural. Um, and also, the kids' cartoon yeah. was the kids' cartoon. You pick up the comic, it's different tone, visual, the whole thing. And so it just has this right. different feel. Especially the old Mirage. Yet, without the kids' cartoon, you wouldn't have well, known who they no, were, right? that's true. So it was your intro to them. You knew who they were. You knew the basics of their story and their world. And it helped you. Maybe there was a big bump up. I, I maybe am in a particularly privileged position being in my mid-50s now because when I started reading in the 70s, they were, some of the comics were a little bit over my above my age grade, but a lot of them were still at my age level. So I started with Fantastic Four and Avengers and stuff. And then as I got a little older, that's when Marvel started doing their horror comics, which, you know, felt a little older. And then... Um, by the time I was in college, it was Frank Miller and Alan Moore. And then by the time The Watchmen came out, I was in my mid-20s, which is... So it almost seemed like it was the world was designed for me in comics until about 1991, where that all fell apart. In more ways than one. But. Uh, yeah, no, I can see what you're saying. In some ways, though, I feel like I have some benefit of gaining faster hindsight. Like, the one character that I felt really harshly about at the time was Deadpool, because... I was kind of enjoying this character moving mm -hmm. along with it, but suddenly it wasn't my Deadpool. And looking back, I still stand by that because Daniel Way is not a good choice for writing Deadpool, but he's had the longest run. Does he not? Right. Anyways. Um, but, well, Dugan must have yeah, been a long time now. He just they both had long runs, run, I I and I don't know who had the longer run at this point, especially because with the renumbering, it's harder to count. Because technically to Dugan had like out, yeah. three runs, but one of them might have been like eight issues. Right. besides the point um but like one of my favorite yeah. characters was originally introduced in an early fantastic four i believe it was annual uh the multiple man and going back and reading uh -huh. early incarnations of the multiple man is oh it's a different character than the jamie madrix that i know and love from peter david's second take on x factor um, right i I mean, and I love that character, but going back and reading some of the earlier stuff, I could care less. That's not that guy. Well, I think Marvel is much more trapped than DC with people having their version of somebody that they can't let go of. Because Marvel, early on, you know, when I started reading Marvel, the Marvel Universe was literally 10 years old and really probably had only coalesced five years before I started reading. Um, so I could still feel it was all one thing. And for most of the 70s, a lot of the writers were still doing their best to follow in the footsteps of Stan Lee. But then after that, you get you have to get new versions of everything. It's just not possible to do it any other way. But there's this illusion with Marvel of continuity. Whereas with Batman and Superman, they were so ridiculous in the Silver Age 
and in much of the Bronze Age, that you're much more willing to just accept, okay, here's someone's new take on Superman, someone's well, take and, on Batman. Although we do complain a lot about Tom well, King's take on Batman. Bad but, comics are bad you know comics, I mean. notwithstanding a particular yeah, character well, type. <laughs> my own problem is with Tom King's take on Batman, but... I'm, I'm never completely happy with anyone's take on Batman because I have my own I, Batman in my Yeah, head. so Batman's a weird character for me because I don't like Batman. But I like the world Batman's in. I like the side uh-huh. characters of Batman a, a chunk. So I care more about how Tim Drake's written in a given thing. But for the most part, I feel like Tim Drake's been written fairly consistently. Uh, I yeah, mean, he was yeah. a little more extreme in the 90s in a more fun, bizarre way, but it was the 90s. And I, yeah, I can't really speak to that since I didn't. Well, you have some grand reading ahead of you, dear friend. There's a great Goldfinger (laughs) reference in an early issue. Uh, There's uh, um, Asbats choking Robin out, forcing him to leave the. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd rather read DC from the 90s than Marvel from the 90s, that's for sure. I've been going through some different things, and it depends what characters, what writers. There's good stuff happening in the 90s. It was just in none of the main books because the writers because uh, all right, the bankruptcy right. was happening so the creators almost had more freedom i feel in a lot of ways because if it was a b book they were trying they're like just try to make it good you know and i i think the editors didn't trust themselves so they were a little more willing to let uh different things happen well, I do have the sense in the late 90s, things really freed up and editors were, writers were really trying all kinds of different things. I guess I didn't, I haven't looked close enough at Marvel in the 90s. I just sort of start with my general impressions from the early 90s and moved on. <laughs> yeah, no, there's some great, I mean, there's some great stuff, especially really late 90s, which is basically hinging on or leading into a lot of the early 2000s stuff. It's funny, though, I mean, I'm putting down the idea that you can go, can't go back and everything, but when I've been reading Marvel 2-in-1, written by Chip Zdarsky with Ben Grimm and Johnny Storm, I've been really enjoying it, and although it's clearly done as a modern comic with big splash pages and not tons of dialogue, it still kind of somehow touches back on those old memories of mine. And yes. then I was saying I wonder if Dan Slott can pull off the same trick of kind of writing a modern comic book that has some satisfying throwbacks to the old Fantastic Four. Uh, I'm sure you can. I mean, look, uh, Dan Slott did a lot of bizarre and interesting throwbacks throughout a Spider-Man run that proved, like, he knew Spider-Man and knew where to pull. And there were some flubs along the way, but the man wrote the comic for a decade. Uh, and I have a feeling he may not be as familiar with the Fantastic Four, but I'm sure he's very familiar with the Fantastic Four. And I I just imagine that it, he'll be able to pull that together. It, that I just think Dan Slott is a powerhouse that is somewhat underrated. Well, I would agree just based on how much I loved his Silver Surfer. And obviously the Silver Surfer connects to the Fantastic Four. Um, well, I'll find now out Now there soon. he was helped a lot by, for me, because I know you don't like this artist, he was helped a lot by working with uh, Michael Allred, who evokes that retro feeling all on his own. If retro's flat, then I agree. <laughs> 
Someday you're going to suddenly say, whoa, I do like Michael Allred. He's done some all right stuff as just an artist, but a lot of it is I really tried to dig into Batman and I could not. Madman. Oh, okay. I thought I heard it sounded like Batman, but Madman. Yeah. You know, I don't think I like his writing either. I like it when someone else is doing the writing. I look, he and Dan, Dan Slott gave us what felt like a Michael Allred comic, but then I go read a Michael Allred comic and I say, boy, this is disappointing. I wish Dan Slott were writing it. So <laughs> Dan Slott somehow got that essence of what seems cool about Michael Allred and put it into his script, I guess, I feel. I guess. I just Every time I look at Michael Allred art, it just feels flat to me. Well, it is. It's purposefully flat, which is kind of disorienting. He doesn't do a great job with uh, different levels of perspective and stuff. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't seem to want to. Boy, that sounds like a great artist. To, like, I don't... It's kind of underground, almost, but not anymore, obviously, because he's done a lot of mainstream comics now. Yeah. So, and I, here's the thing. If you like Mike Allred, you know, all the more power to you. I, I, I don't have anything particularly against it. I just, I don't like it. It's not my bag. It's funny, though, to me that you liked Ed Piscor, but not Mike Allred, because that was also seeing the all those superheroes done in a more kind of flat, non-dynamic style. See, yeah, I could kind of see what you're saying, but... Piscor um, is doing all these intricate details things. And what he's doing is he kind of creates just kind of this level playing field so that all these crazy elements come together and they feel balanced out. It, it just makes any random aspect of the X-Men coming in feel like it fits by having this art style that makes everything somewhat look uniform. It fits what he's doing. I feel like if I was reading just an average Marvel comic put out with Ed Piscor art, it wouldn't grab me uh -huh. nearly as strongly. But for what we were going through, it really fit. Well, I felt that all reds, in the same way, really fit with the way they did the Silver Surfer. Um, as a slightly tongue-in-cheek, slightly knowing, comic booky book about cosmic adventures with weird aliens and... Maybe I need to give it a shot. I honestly didn't check it out because of Allred. Yeah. I mean, there have been times when I found Allred. For, like, at one point he did a fill-in issue on Daredevil, and I and it was like, oh, God, this just looks awful. What a mess. Well, and coming off of oh, who was doing Daredevil at the time, Samney? I think it was Chris Samney at the time. If not, it was Marcos Ooh. Martin. It was one or the other. Yeah, which... <laughs> I, that's not uh, that's not fair. Those right. guys are incredible. But I can't help but moments. Uh, eventually, I got into Piscor. This is all referring back to what we talked about in our last podcast, in case you missed it, um, in the Grand Design X Men Grand Design. But um, there were moments where I was like, you know, comparing it to Jack Kirby in in uh, in these Fantastic Fours we read today or talked about today and read recently. Every panel has things just kind of moving in and out at you and coming from all directions. And then Ed, Ed Piscor is almost like drawing across a line, a flat diorama or something, <laughs> compared to Jack Kirby. But after a while, I, I gave up on the Jack Kirby dynamics 
while reading the grand design and got into what Ed Piscor was doing, which is just a different aesthetic. Totally. But that's another thing, you know, with superheroes is accepting new art styles and such. Right. <clears throat> Though there are art styles that just never seem to work and they quickly fade. Well, some do. Um, well, like people hate the art style in Squirrel Girl. And I can't say I totally love it, but I've learned to appreciate it after having read so many issues of Squirrel Girl with my daughter. I like Squirrel Girl. I think that's fine. Uh, when I was saying that, I was thinking in particular of some CGI or badly digitally rendered comics oh, yeah, that I yeah. saw. I certainly Spider-Man hate those, stuff too. That <laughs> faded quickly. Um, well, maybe it, uh, it turns out I am getting Dan Slott's Fantastic Four because I didn't remember, but I put in for a, a Marvel Mail subscription to it. So oh. maybe once I get that, we could just do a quick podcast where we talk about what we think of the first issue. Um, we can do that, but we should let our listeners know first what our next episode's going to be, I, which you don't know, I don't but know. I do. And we might expand on this, but because we get to swap between uh, issues, I know Damien's next one will be Galactus. I wanted to keep the Kirby train running oh, really? and do an issue... Of the Ninja Turtles. Okay. That is a dedication to Kirby uh, <laughs> that happened in the moment of his death. Uh, because a lot of people, when they talk of the Ninja Turtles, attribute a lot to Frank Miller and his influence because the Daredevil connection's obvious. Right. But they were also very big fans of Kirby, and there's a lot of elements of Kirby throughout their comics. I mean, namely the mutant turtle part came more from Kirby than Miller. It didn't come, um, I mean, because at the time, the two popular comics were the X-Men and Daredevil. So it didn't come just from Claremont's X-Men. It was more Kirby X-Men kind of thing. Well, that's kind of like monster. And when you see some of the art and some of the ways they play on Kirby in this issue, I think it makes more sense. After reading this issue, that's what I made the connection. Yeah. To. So maybe it's just me. No, I definitely but, um, make the connection between their art style and Kirby. So I totally buy into that. Right. Um, so, and maybe you'll read more than just this one, because it would just be one issue, and it might be hard to just do a single issue. But, um, Donatello. We had talked about eventually reading some of those classic ones that are either colored or not colored, depending on where we find them. Right, and this might just be replacing all that, but I thought with it being a tribute to Kirby, it might give you a little... Tie our two interests together. (laughs) Yeah. And this is just one issue of comics I want you to read badly, okay. so I'm going to make an assignment. It should be um, noted I, that I had I did go through a short period of reading Ninja Turtles because Matt was recommending them, and I did enjoy them very much, but somehow I let them slip by. Um, and I bought, I, I actually, in that run at the time, it was it was Sophie Campbell, but she wasn't called Sophie Campbell then. And then someone else took over. And when that someone else took over, I stopped reading them, but I kept buying digital copies as they came on sale. And so I still have a backlog of those to read somewhere in my iPad. Oh man! And now those are <laughs> retro. Right. You've moved. But you've yeah, moved I... on so far from those. You probably don't care. But I mean, I care. <clears throat> I love all of them. But yeah. Uh... But yeah, I think this Kirby one-shot 
no, the Kirby one shot. It's the Donatello micro series. And then maybe uh, depending on how we can access that, maybe talk about a couple of the other micro series that were just named after they gave each turtle their own single issue. And they're all, they're all except the Leonardo one. Not that it's bad. It's just in continuity with something else. that doesn't make any sense on its own. So, Well, um, that sounds good. I look forward to reading it. And then after that, we can return and take a quick look at this Galactus trilogy. Yeah, so we have, like, plans and designs right. for... We just have to find the time to actually get together and talk. But exactly. and we, we will not stay dead, though. We will be back. Never stay dead. <laughs>